Beloved, in Luke 24, good Dr. Luke captures an account for us that's unique in the Gospels. On the road to Emmaus, when two disciples are walking this seven-mile journey, and all of a sudden Jesus, the risen Jesus, appears before them. Uh, They don't recognize who he is, and he asks them what it is they're speaking of. And they say something along the lines of, are you the only person in this area that's not aware of the events that have taken place? They let him know that they are trusting in him, that they had been hoping that he was the prophet and the one that had been prophesied of old. Uh, they even go on from there and talk about that they had that he'd been crucified. They taught him, or they didn't teach him, they told him about that. And then they give an account of the women, of the godly women that gave an account of Jesus. We picked that up in verse 23. They did not find his body. They came saying, these godly women, saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us, the two disciples say to Jesus, went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And his response, the risen Jesus' response to them was, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ, this divine motif, this divine necessity, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer those things and to enter into his glory? And then in verse 27, Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Again, this is a roughly seven-mile journey, maybe two hours. What an incredible teaching session from Jesus to these men. What did he tell them? Where did he come from? I would imagine if he began in Moses, perhaps he began in Genesis 3.15. In the very same time that God was pouring forth his judgment on Adam and Eve when he gave the promise that a seed would be born to the woman and would crush the head of the evil one. Perhaps he moved on from there and told these two disciples about Abraham and how Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, 6. And by virtue of his faith in God, it was credited, it was reckoned to Abram as righteousness. Perhaps he told them about that in Moses. Uh, He went through the prophets. Did he perhaps even go as he was going through from Moses to the prophets, the different covenants, God's promise to Noah in Genesis 9 that he would never destroy the world with a flood again, God's promises to Abram in Genesis 12 of a land and a seed and a blessing that would come to him, God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would give him an eternal throne and give him rest. Did he also perhaps go to the weeping prophet Jeremiah? And in Jeremiah chapter 31, about the new covenant promises that God promised the nation of Israel. And that all of us in Christ, in the church, Jews and Gentiles in Christ, are beneficiaries of these promises God gave to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 31. Perhaps he went there as well. Well, Beloved, in any event, that is precisely where we find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 8. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. In verses 8 through 13, in verses 8 through 12, we have the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, where the author of Hebrews 
quotes four verses from the weeping prophet Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. That is the passage we have before us here this morning. And what we'll do as we expand upon and try to unpack the riches that we have here in Hebrews, which is a direct quote again from Jeremiah 31, we'll use this as a springboard for all of the good promises from Moses through the prophets about Christ, which are centered in and flow through the new covenant, which is the subject matter on the heart of the author of Hebrews and on God's heart for you and for me even this morning. Beloved, listen as I begin reading in the second part of verse 8 at the beginning of this long quote in Hebrews chapter 8. This is the word of God. He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is the word of God, beloved, that's been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, Some people have said that the book of Hebrews is in some ways almost a sermon on Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Uh, One way you could even look at this is Hebrews 1, verse 1, all the way through the beginning of Hebrews 8, verse 8, is kind of an introduction. And then he gives the scripture reading of his text, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And then what takes place, chapter 9 and forward, is expanding on the doctrine of what's been laid down in this new covenant promise from God out of Jeremiah and then applying it to the lives of the believers. Now, all of this, of course, falls under the umbrella of the overarching theme of Hebrews, which is the infinite superiority of Christ. He is greater than the prophets, is the way the author opens up. He's certainly greater than the angels because he's the creator of the angels. He's a better messenger and apostle than Moses. He gives a better peace. He's greater than Joshua. Joshua wasn't able to give true peace to the nation of Israel. Certainly Moses wasn't able to, but Jesus is greater than Joshua. Then, as we find ourselves in the center of this book, he's also vastly, infinitely superior to Aaron and the Levitical priesthood that God had laid down as our perfect high priest. And all of this channels itself through these new covenant promises that God has laid out to the nation of Israel. And beloved, what we see as the author quotes from Jeremiah, is there are four characteristics that make the new covenant infinitely superior 
than the old covenant. Namely, it is ecumenical, internal, universal, and merciful. It is ecumenical. It is reconciling. It reconciles, and this is interesting, the author opens up with a subtle hint of how in the new covenant man is reconciled to man. Because even as he wraps it up at the end, because man is reconciled to God, a product of that at the horizontal level is the healing of division between man and man. And it's from the inside out, and it's for all the peoples, from the least to the greatest, and from the greatest to the least, to the least, the last, and the left out in Christ, all are part of this blessing. So, At the beginning, let's look at this first characteristic that marked the new covenant as infinitely superior to the old covenant, namely that it is ecumenical. It is reconciling. And I use the word ecumenical in the generic root sense of it, that, again, because it reconciles man to God, a product of that is it reconciles man to man. Look at verse 8 when he begins the long quote. He says from Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So the first time we see that two-word phrase, new covenant, is in Jeremiah 31. The next time we encounter, as we go through the Bible, that phrase, new covenant, is in Luke 22, when Jesus, in the uproom discourse, when he was instituting the first communion, the first Lord's Table. He says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, as recorded by Luke. The next time we encounter that phrase is when Paul, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is giving instruction to the church in Corinth around the Lord's table, he quotes from Jesus out of that upper room discourse, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. We see it one more time before we get to Hebrews in 2 Corinthians 3, and then now we encounter it, a new covenant for the first time here in Hebrews, also in chapter 9 and chapter 10 as well. And beloved, he's drawing a contrast here between the new and the old. What the author lets us know is that the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new now revealed in Christ. And we understand the new because of the old. That's why, look at verse 9, he continues this contrast. He says this new covenant is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Literally, when I took their hand by my hand and led them out. Uh, Even that there tells us that the old covenant was good, even in its imperfection, imperfection in the sense of not completeness as part of God's purpose for it. There was glory, there was purpose, there was the grace of God even as he rescued the nation of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt. Now, Beloved, as we would look at this as a springboard to help us understand the backdrop and the significance of this new covenant that he's effecting, turn back to Genesis 9. 
I want to give a quick rehearsal of some of the biblical covenants. The biblical covenants that are unilateral, which are based upon God saying, I will do this thing. These are unilateral, you could almost say unconditional, in the sense that God said, this is what I am going to do in these covenants. For example, the first covenant, biblical covenant we see is in Genesis 9, when after God had destroyed the world with the flood, and he set the rainbow as a sign of a covenant he makes with Noah. In Genesis 9, verse 15, God says that when he looks at the bow, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And what I want you to draw out of that is twice in verse 15 and then in verse 16, God says, I will. Now turn over a page or two to Genesis chapter 12. When God calls Abram out of the pagan land of Ur, and he gives him a promise, and he lays the foundation of God's covenant promise to Abram, look at what it says, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Watch this, verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. So again, this promise, this covenant that God lays down with Abram is based on God saying, this is what I will do. Or turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God gives his covenant promise to King David, we see similar language of what God will do to this man, David. Verse 8, 2 Samuel 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, so that you should be ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Watch this. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. Even from that day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Beloved, the point is again and again, God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. There is an infinite difference. Distinction. There is a massive difference between God saying I will and men saying we will or a man saying I will. And to bring out this contrast and help us understand the foundation of what we have in our passage in Hebrews, now turn to Exodus chapter 19. <clears throat> so the one covenant of the six covenants in Scripture that we see that is conditional, that is bilateral, that is not based ultimately solely on God's veracity, God's 
faithfulness. God's goodness is the covenant that is made with Moses, the Mosaic covenant. In Exodus 9, God has, or excuse me, Exodus 19, God has, of course, rescued the nation of Israel from their captivity in Egypt. And in Exodus 19:1, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, watch this, beloved, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Now look at verse 8. This is the key. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Beloved, that's the foundation of the old covenant that the author of Hebrews is using as the contrast to the new covenant. And again, there is the infinite difference between God saying, I will do this, and men or a man saying, I will do this thing. In You continue to go on with God's dealings with Israel. God gave Israel in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. He told them what the blessings would be for their obedience and what the curses would be for their disobedience. And the people again said, we will. And in essence, God said, no, you won't. You won't. You won't do it. You will fail. So, in a sense, God set the nation of Israel up for failure from the beginning. But that is an act of mercy because from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden through the nation of Israel, there is always this driving home point that we need a Savior. Everything from Moses through the prophets points to Christ, testifies of Christ. In John chapter 5, when Jesus was interacting with the scribes and Pharisees, saying, you search the scriptures looking for eternal life, these testify of me. Beloved, they all testify of Christ and point us and remind us that we need a Savior. For example, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 20, God tells the nation, when I bring you into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to your fathers, and you've eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then you will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. That's the foundation. That's the old covenant foundation that sets the stage for the beauty and the glory and the blessing of the new covenant. And that's even back here in Hebrews 8. Look at verse 9. That's what the author is appealing to when he says, For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. And there's an emphatic nature, for they themselves did not continue in my covenant, and I myself did not care for them, says the Lord. Beloved, the point here is, 
when the people of God couldn't meet God's standard, he didn't lower his standard to accommodate their ability. Rather, he, from the beginning as his intent, he provided a way of escape. He provided a substitute. He provided a different, better covenant, a way to meet his standard, to satisfy his justice, and forever and ever display his grace and his goodness and his mercy. And even here in the Hebrews quotation from Jeremiah, three times you see, says the Lord, says the Lord, says the Lord. Literally is saying is the way the Hebrew author here brings it out. There's no if you then this because seven times we see in the original writing of Jeremiah brought out now by the author of Hebrews, I will, I will, I will, seven different times. It makes us think of perhaps Augustine's great prayer when Augustine, the church father, said, God, command what you will and God, grant what you have commanded. Or we can think of the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 9, 16. So then it does not depend on man who wills or runs, but rather on God who has mercy. It is God's mercy which is the way Jeremiah finishes his original quote and the way the author finishes it here as well. It is God's mercy that makes all of this possible. And it is the mercy that is the stream of the difference between man's I will and God's I will. But what he says, and here's to the point of the ecumenical, the reconciling dimension of the new covenant. He says in verse 8, Hebrews 8, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So Jeremiah wrote that some 600 years before Christ. Some 330 years or so prior to that, you may remember, God told Solomon in 1 Kings 11, verse 1, Solomon multiplied wives. He multiplied concubines. And because of his sinful, lustful pleasure, God told him that he would rip ten tribes out of the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel out of his hand. And there was a divided kingdom. And he took the ten northern tribes from the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, and gave them to a man named Jeroboam, who became the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 1 Kings 11, you'll read the account of the division of the kingdom. So, all that to say, when Jeremiah wrote this prophecy of the new covenant, for some 330 years, there had been a divided nation. There had been war between the nation. And it's out of the ashes of this that God gives this new covenant promise to the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. There will be a reconciliation. There will be a reunification is what he's communicating here. And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the predominantly Gentiles and even for the Jewish believers in Christ for us right here, right now? Beloved, what that means is that lays the foundation of the reconciliation that is part of the church of Christ. God works so that the reconciled and the redeemed, the Jews and Gentiles, male and female, young and old, rich and poor, learned and unlearned, black, white, red, yellow, blue, and polka dot, live together in harmony and in purity in the church of Christ. Now, 
We know that as part of God's common mercy that man may for a time have peace with other man, but to live in peace and in truth according to the word of God that is only found in the church where God has broken down the wall of separation and knit together as he's building together the family of God, the body of Christ. That's why in the beautiful Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, you'll read the words, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break for the slave is our brother. Beautiful, beautiful lyrics, beautiful, beautiful words that flow from the ecumenical reconciling characteristic of this new covenant promise that God gave to the nation of Israel some 600 years before Christ. So, as we continue through this springboard of the testimony pointing to Christ, the new covenant is ecumenical. Secondly, the new covenant is internal. You see, in the old covenant, the law was written on stone. In the new covenant, the law of God, the statute, the ordinance of God is written on the human heart. And this gets to the very nature of the problem from the beginning. Ever since Adam sinned and God's curse fell on man, the problem has been from the inside out. That's why, for example, in Mark chapter 7, when Christ, in the ministry of Christ, when Christ was having his increasing conflict with the scribes and Pharisees, and at the beginning of Mark chapter 7, the scribes and the leaders were complaining and grumbling because the disciples of Jesus weren't obeying the ceremonial hand-washing ritual that they had established. What had happened was God had given certain instructions about cleanliness in the Old Testament, but what had happened was man began to add his tradition to the clear language and command of God. And in Mark chapter 7, you see this rising escalation of conflict between Christ and the leaders where he is bringing out the fact that their human traditions had trampled over the word of God. Because they had brought another authority alongside the sole authority of the word of God. The authority of the word of God fell by the wayside. And what Christ did in Mark chapter 7 was he helped use that conflict and that tension to point to the ultimate problem. The terminal disease that's been in place since the sin in the garden. Namely that we need a savior. And we need a heart transformation from the inside out. He lets the scribes and Pharisees know that it's not the external washing of the hand. In fact, it's not even food that you put inside your body. Even though God did lay out certain dietary kosher laws to the nation of Israel, those were merely to point people towards the fact that Israel needed to be a distinct nation. And it pointed, it was supposed to point to the fact that we need that inner transformation from the inside out. And they were always the shadow. The food laws were always the shadow. They were never the substance. That's why, for example, Mark 7, 18, and 19, in this conflict, Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees, whatever goes into the man from outside can't defile him because it doesn't go into his heart but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. 
You see, the true nature, the true source of defilement that Christ was laying to the nation and the disciples of the time is not from the internal out, it's from the external in. That's why he says, verse 20, Mark 7, that which proceeds out of the man, it's that that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So, beloved, the whole point here is Jesus there is saying we need a new heart. We need transformation, not from the outside in, We need transformation from the inside out. That's always been the issue, the terminal disease. And that's the foundation for this contrast that we have here in Hebrews 8 from Jeremiah 31. Namely that the old covenant, the law, informed people. It governs behavior. It regulates sinful behavior. But it can't transform people. Knowing what's right does not enable us to do what is right. We need the indwelling presence and power and transformation of the Holy Spirit. That's why, for example, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, after God had laid out the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience that I mentioned before, and they said, by the way, you're going to fail, in Deuteronomy 29, 4, he lets the nation know, even at that time, the reason is because To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. So that was the foundation. Now, look at verse 10 here in Hebrews 8. It's why he says, as he gets to the heart of the issue, which is the heart of the man or the heart of the woman. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. He uses this beautiful Hebrew poetic parallelism to drive home the emphasize and to emphasis on the internal. After those days, Jeremiah wrote some 600 years before Christ, and it was after those days. Now, at the writing of Hebrews, the point is, the time has now come where God, when the author wrote this, and this certainly still is true for you and for me, that God no longer puts his word before his people. He puts his word inside of his people. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. In the New Covenant, obedience is no longer by external compulsion. It's rather by internal desire from the child of God, from the new creature in Christ Jesus. And also, this is something that was laid out even still in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he said, The Lord your God, through Moses, tells the nation of Israel, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. So from the very beginning, that was even a hint at the new covenant promise, even when God was giving them the old covenant. Or turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. In verses 22 through 28, 
You won't see the phrase new covenant, but look at the number of elements, the new things that God will do in the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28 is a new covenant promise from God to the nation. He says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Beloved, we know that that was realized on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and poured out into his church that we have, each and every one of us, are individually a temple of God and that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And it is the Holy Spirit that puts life where there was no life before and enables us to have this internal desire to obey God, to walk with God, to seek God. And beloved, this is a great reminder for us that even when we live in a time such as this with the rapid decay and wickedness of society and the world, that our call from God is to tell people and to urge people not to behave, but to believe. When someone believes, then and only then are we enabled to behave. That's the internal component and characteristic of the new covenant. So it's ecumenical, it's internal. Uh, the third beautiful characteristic that drives home its superiority is it's universal. You see, under the old covenant, special people were anointed with oil for special tasks at special times. In the new covenant, every participant is anointed with the Holy Spirit for every task. From the inside out, for all the peoples, from the least to the greatest, from the greatest to the least, for the least, the last, and the left out. That's why, look at verse 11, he says, and I will be, excuse me, the end of verse 10, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? I mean, that would seem like a good thing. Wouldn't it be a, a good thing, a necessary thing, for everyone to be teaching his fellow citizen and neighbor, know the Lord. But the reason why is because, look at what it says, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. In Isaiah 54, verse 13, God told the nation through the prophet Isaiah, all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. We had our wonderful men's big breakfast yesterday, and Tim, in his great message, he centered mostly on Philippians chapter 2, but he opened up by citing Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And at the very beginning of that great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, this is how Jesus began, as Tim 
brought out to us uh, with an immediate reference to his disciples and for each and every one of us, every man, every woman that's in Christ. And these things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to, hev- uh, eyes to heaven, he said, John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, watch this, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, beloved, you and I know God in Under the old covenant, the nation of Israel lived, and there were many, in fact, the majority of people that operated under the domain of the old covenant died in unbelief. But what we read from Jeremiah, what we read in Hebrews, is a fulfillment. It is God the Father answering Jesus the man, high priestly prayer, that every single one of his children know God personally. That is the universal characteristic of the New Covenant passage. The Westminster Confession had these good words. It said, These things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation, are so clearly propounded and open in Scripture, watch this, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Beloved, One of the beautiful fulfillments of God's promise in Jeremiah captured in Hebrews 8 is that each and every one of us know him from the greatest to the least. And we are all taught by God himself. We are all taught. We are all anointed. Again, in the old covenant, special people were anointed by oil for special tasks at special times. But in the new covenant, all of us are anointed with the Holy Spirit. That's why... God said through the Apostle John in his first epistle, 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. That's why there's a priesthood of all believers. Uh, Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As I mentioned earlier, the first appearance of new covenants, Jeremiah 31, we see it again in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul quotes, the second appearance from Paul is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and this is the last appearance before we encounter it in Hebrews chapter 8. And in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 1, Paul's writing to this immature church in Corinth that had sin issues, had moral issues, had doctrinal issues. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians 3 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And then verse 6. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, which by the way, beloved, 
If you're a believer, you are a servant of the new covenant. The very topic that we're studying here. Servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, the old covenant can condemn. It is the new covenant alone that can redeem and can save. Verse 7, but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel couldn't look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So, beloved, the ministry of condemnation, which is the old covenant, there was a glory to it. It was right and it had a purpose by God. But how much greater the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of the servants of the new covenant bring a greater glory to God and a greater joy to his people. That's what's on the author's heart when he's writing to that group of Jewish believers that were being tempted to go back to the old from the new. So it is ecumenical, it is internal, it is universal. The fourth and final characteristic that drives home the infinite superiority of the new covenant is it is merciful. It's forgiving. And this gets to answering life's most important question. How can sinful man, how can sinful woman approach a holy God? And he wraps up with his final verse from Jeremiah 31, verse 34, here in Hebrews 8, 12, where God says, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This Forgiveness, which is found only in the new covenant, is the foundation for all the rest. It is what empowers and enables all the rest. All of God's I will promises to Abraham and to David and to the priests in Numbers 25, to Phineas and to his genealogy, they are made possible by virtue of the forgiveness that is found in the new covenant and in the new covenant alone. And it's a reminder to us that man and woman could never come to God were it not for his mercy. It makes all the other elements possible. Man's iniquities, man's sins. God says, I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far is he removed our transgressions from us. Or Romans eleven twenty seven. God says through Paul to you and to me, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When we, we the guilty, are pardoned. When the unjust are forgiven and pardoned by the just. When we are emancipated from the bondage of the sin of our will, when we are released, when we are liberated, when our debt is canceled and pardoned, and when Jesus poured out his blood. In Matthew chapter 26, I mentioned before, in Luke 22, when Luke records Jesus instituting the 
first communion, first Lord's table, he talked about this is my blood, which is a new covenant, or this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in me. In Matthew, when Matthew recorded his words, he captured a different nuance where he talked about the cup being his blood, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, that is the key. That is what makes your salvation and my salvation possible. And then finally, in verse 13, after he finished his long quotation from Jeremiah, we have a final inspired preaching commentary from the author of Hebrews. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. It doesn't mean the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It doesn't mean God's promise to the nation that we read earlier in Exodus uh, 19 that it didn't have its purpose, that it didn't have its glory, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Like birds that migrate and go away, like your breath that you can see and then puffs away in the morning, like the eclipse of the sun, so the old is getting ready and very near to disappearing. This was written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman general Titus in A.D. 70. Beloved, God says to you and to me, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. That is the merciful nature of the new covenant. That is the forgiving, pardoning, cleansing dimension of the work of Christ on your behalf and my behalf. God is a pardoning God. He's a merciful God. He's a patient, long-suffering God. He treads his people's iniquities underfoot. He delights in loving kindness. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea, out of sight, out of mind, out of existence, not in spite of his holiness, in perfect harmony with his holiness, because Christ satisfied the requirement and paid the price on my behalf and on your behalf. Beloved, dear friend, Jesus loves sinners who are conscious for their need of forgiveness. That's why he said in Mark 2.17, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And that's why he gets all the glory. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your holiness. God, we mourn over our sin. We realize we fall infinitely short of your standard of perfect holiness. Lord, we don't love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength for for 10 seconds, uh, let alone just on any continual basis. But that is what sets the stage and lays the foundation for so great a salvation, Lord Jesus, that you provided on our behalf for our eternal joy, for our eternal rescue, for our eternal deliverance from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and even eventually from even the presence of sin, and most importantly, for your eternal joy and your eternal glory. It is 
for your glory. It is for your praise and in your name that we pray, that we sing, that we do all these things. And all of your forgiven children say, Amen.